Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Today we're talking about effective activism and specifically how chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo allows us to tap into the internal resources we need to really help other people. Our guest is Alex Bowling, who honestly shares the insights he's gained through his Buddhist practice, which have influenced how he approaches being a volunteer and activist. In particular, he shares how he learned what it means to actually care for the people in front of you as opposed to the idea of people. I'll let Alex share the rest. I'm Alex Bowling. I am in Los Angeles, California, and um, I am primarily an entertainer, singer, actor, writer, the whole nine yards. Amazing. Um, yes, I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll touch on, on uh, bits of your story that connect with that as well. But I'm so happy to talk to you today. And um, I'm thinking, you know, before we get into the theme for this episode, we can um, just kind of get context on your practice. But I also know that you began your practice of Buddhism at a time when you really wanted to do good in the world. And that's a little bit of a preview of what we're going to talk about today. Um, so yeah, maybe we can just start with that story. What was going on in your life at the time? How did you encounter Buddhism? And then why were you interested? Thank you for the question. And thank you for allowing me to tell my story today. Um, I have to go way back to when I was going to grad school in Baton Rouge. This is the first time I encountered Buddhism. I didn't even know it was Buddhism, but in What's Love Got to Do With It, the Tina Turner biopic, I heard Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, and I was so taken by the profound change that happened after she started chanting that I went back to the movie theater two more times in Baton Rouge to hear it and memorize it. And I was getting a master's in voice. And so I would use Nam Myoho Renge Kyo as an exercise, a vocal exercise, huh. having no idea what it was, but it made me feel great. And then I moved to Los Angeles after grad school and I encountered it through several people, several people uh, I knew were Buddhists and they never said Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. And I actually thought they were the craziest people I'd met. You know, it's like, oh, you are typical Los Angeles. <laughs> and so I didn't ask them any more questions about their Buddhism. And then I was doing a, I was one of the producers on a very low budget film, which I thought was going to be a game changer socially. I, I thought this movie was really going to open people's eyes to, uh, you know, the problems in society, especially for gay black people. Um, and it was, it was just going to be a, a game changer of a movie. It turned out to be uh, financially, emotionally, spiritually draining. Uh, I was hitting rock bottom in every aspect of my life because of this movie. And it didn't turn out to be like the encouraging thing I thought it was going to be. And at this time, um, somebody who lived below me, um, uh, an older Japanese woman, she really saw that I was suffering. And she asked me what, what I was doing one day. I was in the yard pushing, um, not an electric or gas, but you know, just a push mower because I was saving money and doing my own <laughs> yard work. And she said, um, what are you thinking while you're doing that? I said, oh, I'm just zenning out. You know, I'm just trying to empty my mind. I didn't know what I was saying. You know, I was just, <laughs> I probably didn't want to talk to her at that moment. And, and she said, oh, I think I have something for you. I was just so charmed by like, you know, the fact that she wasn't turned off by my, <laughs> my trying to get rid of her. And um, so a few days later, she walked me by the hand seven blocks to a community center, an SGI community center. And, um, as we approached, I heard Nam Yoho Renge, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo again for the first time in years. And 
I was like, oh my gosh, it's Tina Turner. I'm home. This is, you know, I internally I've been searching for this for years. And I immediately felt at home and I I understood the the charm of my of my friends, my new friends. I understood why she was in my life. She was she was there to return me to this this thing that made me feel good. Um, huh. Yes. So what attracted me about the chanting, um, it not only made me feel good, but I could tell that it, it moved things around in my life like nothing else did. You know, before uh, I was trying to be an activist, I was trying to be a gay activist, and it was I was trying to be a producer that did good in the, the world, and I felt very ineffective. I felt depressed by my efforts. I felt drained by my efforts. Mm -hmm. But here was the act of chanting. It was something I could do that I couldn't articulate why at the time, but it made me feel like this was an action that was going to create good change. Hmm. How interesting. I, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I have a couple of follow-ups if that's okay. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, okay, so two two things, and I, I want to return to chanting, but I actually am curious, um, where did your sort of interest in, in activism and, and the desire to affect change even begin? I think that might be helpful context for us to understand, because I know a lot changed mm. after, so as much as you're comfortable sharing. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, there is part of it that's just always been an internal drive. Um you know, I can remember as a child, um, I, I grew up in a smaller town in Louisiana, like Charles, and uh, it was big on TV, muscular dystrophy campaigns. And, you know, children were encouraged to have fundraisers. And I remember, I think I was five, and I decided to have one of these fundraisers. And so like the neighborhood got together and we had little activities in the backyard. Uh, I have no idea how much we raised, maybe $25, you know, a lot of the time. And for me as a five-year-old, it was huge. <laughs> and there was kind of a, uh, a rapture, um, just a, a, a great surge of good feeling over that, over doing that. And so I was kind of addicted to that feeling for a long time. And also uh, I went to Catholic school for 12 years and we had these things called apostolic hours where we were supposed to volunteer um, in certain capacities around the school, around home and in the community. And I was crazy for those. I just loved the feeling. Mm. Oh, and then now that I'm thinking of it, like that continued into college um, I went to Yale and it's in New Haven where there's just a lot of poverty or there was at the time, um, you know, the, the inner city quote unquote, um, had really become a place of poverty. And I went into, uh, one of the schools one year and I was a teaching assistant as a volunteer in a first grade. And yeah, I loved doing that. And at the same time, I didn't feel like I was making a real connection to human beings. I judged everything I saw. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, I had that same feeling that I would get from volunteering. But I also was very depressed. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I see. I feel like it's a it's foreshadowing a, a bit uh, of of what sort of began to open up. So, um, thank you for that context. And yeah, let's maybe circle back to Buddhism. So, so if I understood correctly, you had already discovered Nam Myoho Renge Kyo through Tina Turner's movie, and were attracted right. to it. But it was you know only after this period in your life and this neighbor who who introduce you to the whole practice of Buddhism and you re-encountered it. Um, so did you start chanting consistently right away and kind of how did it feel like once you actually began your practice? So honestly, I, I had little purpose in my life when I first started this, because like I said, after 
doing this movie that I thought was going to be so amazing. It actually was just draining in every way. I didn't get up until 10, 30, 11 in the morning. But chanting gave me a reason to get up in the morning. Earlier than that, I became a morning person within a few months. Huh. Like I started getting up at 7 a.m. because I had a reason to get up. And so that already was creating a profound change of looking forward to the day and hopefully, you know, accomplishing things during the day. Mm. And the chanting reinforced this feeling or was the cause for this feeling even. First of all, that's a, a huge change, actually, <laughs> to become a, yeah, a morning absolutely. person. Um, yeah. So maybe we can move into kind of the first big experience, because um, what I'm hearing is that you like immediately sort of saw the, the day to day differences or, you know, waking up in the morning and wanting to to enjoy the day or looking forward to the day is a huge change. Um, but in terms of, you know, what was happening in your life at the time or like, you know, was there anything kind of on your mind or in your heart that you felt like this is something I need to chant about or, um, you know, like what was sort of the first shift that you experienced? Mm -hmm. um, one of the first things that I ended up really focusing on with my chanting was changing my relationship with my father. Mm. Um, it, it was almost a challenge because she said one day with such conviction, with this practice, we can make the impossible possible. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> so I searched in my life for the thing that I really thought was impossible. And that thing ended up being that I could have a good relationship with my father. Mm. Um, you know, like I said, we are from a small town and uh, there are a lot of stereotypes that go along with a small town, Southern white man. And in my heart, I had all of them. Mm. I get, I would hold all of them against my father. I really only saw the negative aspects of him growing up. Mm. And my mother and father separated, um, when I was only nine months old. So I really only knew life with my mother. And then he had visiting custody of me every other weekend and I would dread going to his place. It just, it was boring to me. And I felt like we had nothing in common, even from a, an early age, I would have fantasies like that this man wasn't really my father. So that's why I really thought that this was impossible. The things he would talk about, for example, he would he would drone on to me constantly, even at a, an early age, about like stocks and bonds and business and the family insurance business. And then it wasn't that; it was sports. It was like it's football season. Have, did you see the big game and baseball? And then it, just in succession each season. So like I just built up such a wall against hearing anything mm. that he had to say by the time I was starting practice. Uh, I started practicing about, I think I was 37 mm -hmm. when I started chanting. So really set in my ways in a lot of, a lot of ways of thinking. Right? <laughs> um, and so my sponsor said, yeah, you absolutely can chant to turn the impossible into the possible. So I asked her, how do I do that? Like, I challenged her, what, you know, what exactly does that mean? She said, I want you to chant for his happiness. <laughs> like, okay, I can do that in theory. I don't know what that means. She said, chant to appreciate him. And I really, really, really had a hard time intellectually with that. But I tried. I sat in front of the Gohonsen and I chanted to appreciate my father. And it didn't take that long. It took a few days of my mind really resisting this. But finally, my mind gave up. <laughs> I had realized I wasn't going to give up. And it allowed me, my heart took over. And my heart could see, could appreciate, first and foremost, that this person had given me life. Without him, I would not even 
be able to grapple with this problem. Mm -hmm. I would not be able to savor all the, the things I was able to enjoy in life. So first and foremost, I could appreciate him for giving me life. And then I was, I was able to appreciate that he could make me laugh. Mm -hmm. And it was a negative laugh, you know, for years. Mm -hmm. But then that opened up uh, an appreciation floodgate. Like I started realizing that so many of the things that I liked about myself, like that I was an artist, mm -hmm. that I had been exposed to many, many cultures, and I really loved learning about things that were vastly different from me. These qualities he had been cultivating in me for my entire life, mm -hmm. and I just hadn't seen it. He was the one that was trying to expose me to many cultures. He was the one that really wanted me to be happy. And yet he wasn't, he had never said it in the way that I wanted him to say it. And when I started appreciating his life for all that he had done for me, I realized that it didn't matter how he said it. Mm -hmm. All I could hear was, I love you and I want you to be happy. The rest did not matter. And so that after that moment, after that floodgate of appreciation opened, he could say anything about stocks and bonds. He could keep droning on about the big game coming up <laughs> on Sunday. And I would sit there forever and just listen and hear, I love you. And I could give it back to him. You know, I could share my daily life with him freely. And I could say openly, I love you, Dad. Thank you so much for calling today. And everything changed mm. from that moment. And it wasn't just my relationship with him. Like that made me reevaluate every relationship I had. Wow. So that was, that was my first experience. And it's unmatched because I would say in, in my experience with the practice, because every other experience has been just... Uh, working that formula <laughs> again you know when I have an obstacle I can I can learn to appreciate the obstacle I can find out in front of the Gohons and like what can I appreciate about this obstacle how is this obstacle going to make me stronger mm. yeah that's incredible thank you so much for for sharing all of that and it you know it strikes me hearing you share that experience that um, of course you know in, in Buddhism we learn that like an internal change in one person can create an incredible external change. Um, and I feel like what's striking about this experience is it sounds like you didn't have to do anything other than chant and change your own heart. Like it's not like he changed necessarily, which is very striking. Um, so I, I like the way that you phrased it as like repeat this. You had to repeat this formula in essence for other experiences. Um, so before we move on to kind of how this experience impacted other parts of your life, um, just for people who are totally new to Buddhism, like what is that formula? Uh, that formula is based on this concept of eshofuni, we call it, or two but not two. The basic, the way that most humans, and I certainly thought of life as there's this separation between self and environment, you know, and most of the time I was just being reactive um, to my environment. It, it controlled my life. Mm. And Buddhism says there's no actually, there's no actual separation between self and the environment. And the person in the driver's seat is us. We are actually able to manifest our interior life in the environment because there is no true separation between these two things. And so the formula is creating a deep internal change, we would say on the ninth level of consciousness, like the, the most profound level of life. And we call that Nam-myoho Renge-kyo. And when, we, when we're operating on that level of consciousness, that level of life, it naturally is seen, that change that's happening in that interior life gets seen in our exterior life, in our environment. Mm. And so with my father, yeah, it was very natural 
that because I made this profound internal change that I could, which bubbles up to be able to see him different, to hear him different, to just experience him in my environment as completely different, then that basically just allows him to change himself mm. effortlessly. Mm -hmm. And like you say, he's not actually changing who he is, but that relationship, the, the dynamic between us is completely different. Yeah, 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 that totally makes sense. Thank you for, for explaining. Because I, yeah, I feel like it's so important to draw that out for people who are like, wait, you chanted and then like all of that just happened. <laughs> Um, so, so then I'm, I'm curious, you know, just to move into sort of the topic for today and, and maybe even a more general one that I, than I originally anticipated, but I think that, um, how do you say, like feeling ineffective as a human being is a tremendous suffering and it can show up in many different ways. It doesn't specifically have to be about activism or social change or career. It could be in our personal relationships. It could be in how we take care of ourselves and, so many other things. So I'm, I'm curious how um, this sort of like internal growth um, or this internal shift that you initially experienced with your father started to impact um, actually like kind of your view of yourself. Um, and then I want to move into then, you know, social change and, and the impact there. But does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, because of this change that happened vis-a-vis -vis my father, I was able to start self-reflecting on all the places, all the times, all the contexts that I was, in fact, being the wall between myself and other people. Hmm. Uh, another great example of things that changed, I, you know, part of how I view activism or social change um, has always made me a volunteer, you know, as I've said. And um, so there's one agency, one nonprofit that I volunteered with since 1999. And part of what I do is deliver food uh, to people uh, who really need it for, you know, for their health. And it's free. And it's such a great mission for this agency. And before this practice, I approached it with that wall between myself and other human beings. I really expected people to be having the same experience as I was. I expected them to show gratitude in the way that I expected them to <laughs> show gratitude. And I expected the whole thing because I was doing good. I expected the whole experience to be smooth and effortless. Hmm. And for years, I would go to people's homes delivering the food and half the time they're going through so many things in their lives, you know, half of them would say thank you cursorily. Mm -hmm. And some would just be like a nod or something. And so like I wasn't for a long time, I wasn't getting the reaction that I expected. You know, I wasn't being lauded as the hero <laughs> of this tale. <laughs> and also, you know, you had all the daily life issues of parking and the heat and the air conditioner going out in my car and the food falling over, it just like all these things that in my mind were supposed to be effortless because this was a good deed, um, that, that never happened. Mm -hmm. So I would just get so frustrated by the experience. And, and yet I kept going because I knew that, you know, as, as an activist and a volunteer, this was the only way that change was going to happen in the world. If more people were better people like me, we would be able to affect good change. And so with this practice and with this change in my relationship with my father and with more self-reflection and with more appreciation, I started being able to see the clients and all the obstacles getting to them as my benefit. Like without them, without these obstacles, I could not see life really as it was. And I could not, I could not savor the moments. Mm -hmm. And I, I was not in my former frame of mind actually doing that much good for these people that I thought I was helping. I was probably showing up with a big frown on my face. 
<laughs> I was certainly not giving them good vibes. Um, and so I really determined to, to start meeting the clients. Like I would chant that the food would really help them. It would be exactly what they needed for to, to nourish their bodies. And I, I chanted that I would have the spirit to show up at their door, you know, with a smile on my face and that that's exactly what they needed that day to be able to overcome, you know, their, their obstacles that day. Mm -hmm. So when it became focused on them, I know that I was a more effective person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And it's also so real, like hearing you say this, this is a complete aside, but it's interestingly, I had a very long conversation this morning about uh, how not to do harm when you are really working, you know, for the, the good of other people. And um, I, I just was observing everybody and felt like, you know, sometimes human beings do good because they're afraid of being perceived as bad. And so doing doing good as much as you can, it's almost like coming from a negative place or I don't want to be grouped with the people who are, are not helping the world. So I'm going to group myself with the people who are. But it's it's still not this like proactive um, pro. It's you know what I mean? I don't know if it's making sense what I'm saying. So I no, no, no. Total sense. Because okay, one of my favorite Buddhist concepts is the 10 worlds. Mm -hmm. So for those who have never heard of this, this is is a way of thinking about life in terms of life condition. Mm. You know, older systems of thought think that there's a, a physical place that's a hell, a physical place that's a heaven. Where in Buddhism, we, we realize that moment to moment, we have all these potentials uh, for, you know, feeling and interacting with our environment and our interior selves. Uh, we have all these potentials and, and we can choose which ones going, we're going to bring forth in the moment. And so um, I realized when I started practicing and really chanted to know myself better, I realized I was born into the world of anger or arrogance hmm. more than any other. And, and so exactly in that world, we... I'm just going to speak for myself. I <laughs> would, um, I would only derive a sense of self-worth by comparing myself to others. Hmm. And, you know, in certain contexts, like academic contexts where I could outsmart somebody, I could feel vastly superior a lot of the times. Hmm. But as soon as a smarter person walked into the room, I was in hell. You know, I like I, I couldn't handle that there was a smarter person in the room because suddenly I have no worth. And so this is in this life condition, I'm I'm constantly um, I'm just comparing myself to other people mm -hmm. and suffering from it. And Buddhism says that we can we can draw forth a, a better life condition, even while in the same comparing situations. So as an activist, I, um, what, what was your example? It was so beautifully articulated. Where, oh, right, where a lot of people do good because we want people to, to see that we're doing good. Right. You know, that's, it's not really self-motivated. It's just for show. Mm. And that's definitely where my activism and my volunteering was coming from. Mm. I did it so people would notice me and that I would have this rush of feeling like my life had worth. Wow. Um, and I had to be a better activist than other people. And I had to be a better volunteer than other people. That just leads to suffering. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for being so honest about that. Because I, I actually think so many people will relate relate to that. You know, of course, we, we have, um, I mean, you know, so many people pure-heartedly want to help other people but often just because of human nature at, at the crucial moment you know the thing that keeps one motivated tends to be one oneself and one's own desires whatever they may be um so I'm I'm curious uh how that started to shift I mean you you explained you know for example um with this kind of weekly volunteering that you've done for so long how you approached it differently but in terms of just thinking back to the person who began their practice having made that film that just didn't have the impact that you were hoping and ended up creating more suffering for you um 
yeah how did how did practicing buddhism like help you sort of uh what's the word like revise your approach um and were there any was there anything you learned through buddhism or experienced um you know even if it's other experiences that helped you do that um so i think one of the the primary ways that i've changed my approach to social change to fighting for justice is seeing developing the wisdom to be able to see an individual and developing the courage to be able to overcome my own weaknesses to help them with what they need hmm. as opposed to you know the the older version of me that wanted to give them what i thought they needed um, so Buddhism develops courage, compassion, and wisdom, right? In our lives. Yeah. And we have these monthly discussion meetings, like they are the core of this Buddhist community mm -hmm. where we bring, you know, we share what's going on in our lives and we encourage each other that we can overcome it through the practice. And, uh, they're just so important and so different from you know what happens uh, in daily life usually so having people in my home i i was forced to see them as individuals and not lump everybody together well everybody that practices with the sgi is like this mm. no i'm in it we have i think it was tota that compared the fact that we we practice together in a community with the old story uh, or the old way of bringing potatoes in a sack to the marketplace and the farmers didn't peel the potatoes before they brought them to the marketplace they would just put them in a sack and as they're traveling with them in the sack the potatoes rub up against each other and by the time they get to the marketplace they're polished mm -hmm. that's what we're doing in the sgi community we're like polishing each other <laughs> like potatoes in the sack mm -hmm. um yeah, yeah. I hope that makes it sense. totally does. I love I love that analogy. And I often use it when I I mean, that's, you know, participating in a in a genuinely holistically diverse community. Also, I think that's like the the part of uh, of diverse communities that people don't talk about that, you know, it's hard sometimes to really see eye to eye with everybody. And that process that you described, um, when it's aided by chanting consistently and bringing your best self to the table, you grow exponentially faster than you would anywhere else <laughs> so yeah thank you for raising that um I, you know I I also recall when we spoke on the phone um prior to this interview that you you mentioned that you sort of like there is this shift and you just alluded to it away from caring for the idea of people as a whole to caring about actual specific people and I'm curious to hear more about that because I yeah I think there's a lot to be learned from from that transformation for all of us um, and yeah if, if you don't mind speaking to that a little bit mm -hmm. um i've been trying to articulate this for several weeks since we last talked uh it's such a big topic but i like to think of it in terms of that world of anger or arrogance when that was my presiding world I could not see the person in front of me as they truly are and where they truly are. Through the lens of arrogance and comparing myself to them, I always had to see them as part of a group and I would profile, you know, just like I accuse other people of doing. Meaning mm -hmm. like if you, if you didn't fit my idea of quote unquote, the people, if you didn't fit my idea of someone who needed my help, if you didn't fit my idea of somebody worthy of my help, then I could dismiss you. I could mm -hmm. find a reason to like throw money at the problem if I had it, or just escape to some different project or have a drink. You know, like I, I just, yeah. because of this, this lens, this cataract, uh, this lack of wisdom, I could not appreciate the person in front of me as an individual. Mm -hmm. And so I think the most profound thing that my Buddhist practice has done for me is sort of 
help me remove those scales from my eyes and see the person where they are in front mm -hmm. of me, appreciate them in my life. And mm -hmm. it reminds me of a, a story. So, you know, I felt before this practice, I felt so ineffectual as a human being. And I, when people would bring me their problems, even though I thought, you know, I'd be great at helping people with their problems, really, when they brought me their problems, I, I didn't know what to say. I had nothing to offer them. And then after practicing for a few years, somebody that I knew from acting workshops, from classes, um, we stayed, we ended up staying behind together just to chit chat and, um, I asked her, so how are you doing? I didn't know her that well. And she just collapsed into tears. And she said, actually, my family's falling apart. My mother just died. And she was the center of the family. And we don't know what to do. We, we, we don't know what to do. Hmm. And I didn't know the words, but maybe for the first time I could just be with her. I could just appreciate her suffering. And I'm chanting nam myoho Herengekyo in my heart to be able to say something encouraging. And all I could say was like, I, you know, right now it, it feels so heavy. I understand. But mm. in times when I didn't know a way forward, I've learned to chant. And just like I felt so desperate for something different when I started chanting, she grasped at it. She was like, I'll do whatever right now. And so we became fast friends and I taught her to chant and she is practicing to this day. And she is like one of the strongest people I know now. That's so incredible. that makes me feel like an effective human being. I really was able to help somebody. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, hearing you say that also, it just struck me to, to explicitly point out the most obvious thing, which I didn't think of earlier, um, which is, you know, that this Buddhist community, an important part of our Buddhist practice is sharing Buddhism. And, you know, well, I, I know at least I have had many, many conversations with other Buddhists in the past about, you know, how, how does one change the world? We discuss it at our discussion meetings. And some people do have, you know, causes or issues that they've dedicated their professional life or their volunteer life to. But um, sharing Buddhism in and of itself, the purpose is to change the world, to empower one person after another to, to become this kind of protagonist in their own circumstances. So I just want to call that out explicitly. So thank you for, for sharing that example as well. Um, but, but uh, I, I wonder, and again, you, you, you've already sort of started to touch on this, but um, like, were there any turning points that you felt like your approach to working for justice or, or your approach to volunteering really started to change once you became aware of your own anger and arrogance and decided to, to really, chant to, to not look at people through that lens? I started really concentrating my efforts on spreading this teaching. Instead of focusing on the cause of the day. Hmm. So before my, my activism, I was working on this law. I was working on this proposal. I would campaign for this uh, candidate. And then when it was done, like, we either won or we lost. Hmm. But fundamentally, nothing was changing. So once I awakened to this, this way of actually being able to create change in my life and other people's lives, I started really focusing on activating other people. I think that's a, that just came out of my life. Uh, <laughs> I think as an activist, <laughs> I concentrate yeah. on activating other people. 
as opposed to just fighting project to project, I realized that this long-term fight for social change is empowering the person in front of me. And that's where I pour my energies now. Hmm. For example, like one of you know my big things that I would fight for before was LGBTQ plus rights. And in having dialogue with members and guests that are LGBTQ plus or allies, I have learned so much. Like I thought I knew <laughs> the issues, mm. but they were always theoretical issues. They were always, you know, what, what's the law today that we have to fight? But in meeting so many real people with real problems, like I've been able to truly empower people one by one to make the changes they need to make in their lives, to get the juice they need in order to make the changes they need to make. And those collectively make great social change. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I hear that. Um, so I, I want to ask explicitly, you know, about some kind of like Buddhist concepts. But before I go there, um, just out of curiosity to circle back and only if you're comfortable sharing, but, you know, how do I say like when when people go through this kind of um, profound internal transformation or what we call human revolution in Buddhism, uh, one of my kind of favorite markers for it is is the people closest to us, like how they react. And so I you shared about this early experience with your dad, um, but I'm I'm wondering if you're comfortable sharing, like whether it's your family or others around you who had experienced you already as as the person you described yourself to be, uh, did they know you were practicing Buddhism? Did, you know, your your family, I assume, doesn't practice Buddhism, but just kind of how did your friends or family react? Um, well, funny enough, my mother just received Gohonzon and started practicing at 81 this year. Oh my gosh. Yes. Wow. Um, uh, my father, I never outright discussed my Buddhism. I just um, supported his Catholicism in a new way. You know, I, I was able to see the wisdom of his practice mm -hmm. in, a, in a new way. Um, and, you know, where it helped him, I encouraged him, go for it. The last time he went to a mass, he passed away from ALS a few years wow. ago. And um, the last time he went to a mass, I was able to attend with him in Texas. And it was profoundly moving for both of us. It's mm -hmm. just a wonderful human experience. Um, but to the original question, when I started practicing, this was another major experience <laughs> for me now that I think of it. When I started practicing, I had a very, very close friend who reacted badly, let's say, uh, huh. because I was trying to share it with him. I didn't have the words to yet to sort of describe what was going on in my life. But what he felt was that any time I spent working on activities, chanting, it just felt to him like I was abandoning him. Mm. But that was time away from our friendship. Mm. And at least that's how I was perceiving it at the time. And in our frustration, our dialogues just frequently broke down. And, um, and I just really, really suffered. Um, because I was so frustrated, I wanted the best for him. And I like, I wasn't able to seem to say it in the right way. I definitely knew I didn't have the right attitude about this relationship. And so I, I sought what we call guidance. You know, I went to somebody who's been practicing for a long time and, and said, I'm suffering from this. What do I do? Mm. And this person was so compassionate and said, please recognize Please, again, just like with your father, appreciate that without this person, you could not become a Buddha. Hmm. That actually, it's his mission to make you a Buddha. 
It's his mission, without him realizing it, to be as negative as possible (laughs) so that you will become a strong, happy person. Mm. And then you can turn around and help him. Mm -hmm. And it just reminds me that, um, you know, Nietzsche and Daishonin, the founder of this practice of chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, he was the ultimate activist. You know, he was he was a rebel because he was telling the government constantly to their faces, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Everything you're doing is not for the people. It is for your own personal gain. And that's why the country's in such a bad state. And and he had this one political foe, religious foe, his arch nemesis um, in comic book terms was this priest Ryokan, uh, any normal human being <laughs> would think, uh, I have to eliminate this person. You know, this is, this is a bad thing to have in my life. And Nitrin's attitude was like, he is my best friend. Without Ryokan, I could not show the greatness of this practice. I could not show the rightness of my teaching. I could not show people how to appreciate the obstacle. I could not become the strong person that I am today. And even in the face of such adversity, he was absolutely happy, Nietzsche and Daishonin. So when I appreciated my friend's function in my life, that without him I could not become a Buddha, everything changed. Our relationship Mm -hmm went back to being great friends and even went deeper. Like we could be completely honest with each other about our feelings and uh, what we meant to each other. And I, I do not regret any second of that suffering because it meant such a great outcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a wonderful example. Um, yeah. You know, one part of what you shared that actually I think sets up well um how I wanted to sort of wrap up the our conversation is to talk a little bit about the Buddhist concepts underneath it all, because um, I'm sure you've thought about this over the years. And and what I'm hearing from you, even in this example with your friend, is that um, or the example of, of Nietzsche and is like almost like a prerequisite of effective activism is the willingness to um, take full responsibility for all of the internal processes and not not walk away when things are hard either because at the end of the day it's a hard job that needs to get done and you can't quit or because um are you growing as a human being and then able to even bring your best self to the next cause if you're running away every time something is difficult that's kind of what i feel like you're touching at but i know that um yeah there are so many incredible buddhist concepts that help us develop this belief system and actually practice it and i'm wondering if you have any any favorite concept or quote um that has allowed you to to maintain kind of this view. Um, yeah, I, I go back constantly to the concept of the 10 worlds. Uh, it really helps me understand the moment-to-momentness of life. And as I touched on before, my my karma, my my consistent reaction to my environment was in this world of arrogance, comparing mm-hmm. myself to others and either finding myself superior or inferior. And um, in Buddhism, we, we chant to infuse whatever we're going through with Buddhahood. And that means that no matter what the situation, no matter what our normal life tendency is, we can turn it all around in an instant. Mm-hmm. When we call forth this this wisdom to see what's really going on, the courage to change it, you know, and those two things together, wisdom and courage equal compassion. So just to, to live responsibly instead of mm-hmm. reactively, I think the kids would say. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I find that um, this concept of the 10 worlds allows me to to be not reactive, but 
forward leaning. It allows me to take responsibility, to be self-reflective without actually like getting lost in the negativity of self-reflection. And it just helps me form a better vision for what I, I want social change to look like. That's, that's part of the wisdom and that's part of the courage that we're, we're drawing forth from our lives. I used to like be so short-sighted, like it's, we have to change this law right now. We have to defeat this amendment. We have to change everybody's attitude in an instant. And, and yet if I won, I didn't know what we were moving towards. There was no like grand vision of what humanity should be. What is the ideal? Hmm. And Buddhism has, has given me, and especially having like um, a mentor in this Daisaku Ikeda who like can so beautifully articulate, you know, where humanity should and can be. And I, I love using everything that I am and every circumstance I find myself to plug into that, that big vision like I am vital to creating this new humanity, mm. but just as I am, I don't have to be like somebody else. I don't have to yeah. be arrogant about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally hear you. And, and like the, the natural um, or what naturally follows that is then, then so does everybody else belong. You know, there, there isn't a, a like special section of society that, are the activists that have the right worldview. It's like you can be that person in your family or you can actually be working on a political issue. Like everybody has a role to play as themselves. That's right. Oh, that's well done. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I might just move into my, my closing question then. Um, unless there's anything, you know, I didn't think to ask about or that, I, that you did want to raise that maybe we didn't get to. I just checking just in case. Um. I don't know if it's germane, but along this journey of becoming a more effective human being through this practice, one of the ways I like to think about it is learning people's languages. Um, huh. I think before I, I wanted everybody to learn my language. They needed mm -hmm. to get on board with my vision. They needed to get on board with the way I wanted to hear things like I love you from my father. Um, they basically, as you were just mentioning, they needed to like become le more like me. Mm. And so this practice has just broken up that, that idea for me. And now I delight in learning other people's languages, mm. learning what, what makes them happy, what, uh, they're great at, you know, or what are they suffering from? This is all like learning their particular language. And in learning everybody's language, it really increases my capacity as a human being. For example, when I had, um, I had a business with somebody before and they drove me crazy a lot of the times uh, because I felt a lot of the tasks of the business fell to me. They didn't want to deal with that aspect of it. And when I started appreciating them for giving me the opportunity to learn these things, you know, yeah. felt at first like forcing me to learn these things. But when I realized that this was an opportunity to expand my capacity, I could, that relationship turned around completely and I could really appreciate them for giving me the opportunity to expand my yeah. capacity. So once I learned their language, you know, we got along great and we could, we had a great business. Um, so mm -hmm. I just, I just wanted to put forth that idea if it helps anybody look at it that way, you know, let's, yeah. um, as effective human beings, let's learn everybody's language. Yeah. And also yeah. at the same time, I feel like we need a common language because, you know, for example, there's lots of teachings these days, you know, self-help 
And these are very transient ways of talking about life and people's problems and what's going on in society right now. And I'm not going to mention any names, but I mean, there was a book that was so popular 20 years ago and I asked young people if they had ever heard of it and they're like, no, never heard of it. You know, <laughs> it was the greatest mm -hmm. self-help book in the world uh, 20 years ago and now it's gone. So even while we're learning other people's languages, I think we also have to be able to learn the eternal language of Buddhism and mm -hmm. be able to help people learn it as well so that this teaching of the inherent dignity of every human being will last forever. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's very well put. Um, and, and I actually really do love the learning other people's languages example, because um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but one of my favorite quotes from Daisaku Ikeda um, is uh, from the New Human Revolution, I think volume two, where he's like, uh, basically saying that there are capable people everywhere and we often cannot see them that way because we are drawn to people who are similar to us so if you're like a very organized person you'll see other people who are organized as capable and if you're a free-spirited person you know that quote then you'll be drawn to those people um but it's funny because even in the in the world of social change today like there's this beautiful emphasis on um, intersectionality and and being inclusive and so much of that is identity based but so little of that is based on respecting how people communicate and all the different ways that people communicate which I think touches on what you're saying because that kind of diversity is the hardest to accept and get on board with where you might based on how I look where I'm from all of those things be like she should be in the room but if I don't communicate in the way that you enjoy being communicated to you're not going to want to work with me <laughs> You know, so I, I completely hear that. I, I love that point. One of the things I really, really, really appreciate about Daisaku Ikeda is the fact that she can speak to anybody. And hmm. he does the Buddha's work of making sure that the person in front of him understands that he understands them and that they are you know, there is effective dialogue going on. And in all the things, like the volumes and volumes that he's written, you can just see that he's attempting to talk to everybody. He's, he's putting, you know, the same basic principles in different ways to make sure that it resonates with every human being. And that's really like, it's from him that I got this idea that I need to learn everybody's language because yeah. he, he fights really hard to to speak everybody's language. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. And it, it's it's funny, it kind of comes full full circle because it, it sounds like that's that was the experience you had with your dad. <laughs> I had to learn sports and stocks. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, this has been wonderful. Thank you for taking the the time to to share all of this. And um I yeah, I'll move to our closing question, which is how the show always ends, um, which is a piece of advice. So if you could give one piece of advice to someone who's new to Buddhism and maybe is currently struggling with their own efforts, either in activism specifically or, you know, contributing to social change or just simply feeling effective and contributive, uh, what one piece of advice would you give them? Don't intellectualize the suffering of others. That was my greatest fault. Seek to raise your life condition. Seek to raise the life condition of everyone around you. Hmm. And before you know it, you will see world peace in action. And my biggest advice is because activists, we tend to be, we tend to intellectualize problems instead of getting in the muck, <laughs> um, try chanting. It, it, intellectually, it will seem very strange, as it did to me, that, that, that saying these words could actually affect such a profound change in our lives and in our environment. But we have to overcome 
that tendency to intellectualize. We have to enjoy that ineffable, that inarticulatable quality that this practice can do for us, that this, the, the profound change that it can do for us, that we can't at first articulate. So please try it. Alex also shared with me some favorite words from Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda about what it takes to create good change, which I'll leave you with today. They come from a book called One by One, The World is Yours to Change. Ikeda writes, Great good can come of great evil, but this will not happen on its own. Courage is always required to transform evil into good. Now is the time for each of us to bring forth such courage. The courage of nonviolence, the courage of dialogue, the courage to listen to what we would rather not hear, the courage to restrain the desire for vengeance and be guided by reason. On that note, we have many articles at bootability.org about the basics of Buddhism and also about the Buddhist perspective on effecting change in small and big ways. As always, if you'd like to learn more about Buddhism or get connected to your local Buddhist community, you can always email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.